Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Hey, Tracy, you know what's all over the news at the moment? Protests. Yeah, protest marches. So uh, I thought maybe we would talk about the Women's March, but not the one you're thinking about. The one that happened on Versailles in the yes. 1700s. The one that the moment I heard about it, I said, hey, Holly, you should I do think this. you might want to do this episode. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and it's one of those things that I knew about in sort of an abstract way, but I didn't realize... I was not really aware of all of the details of it. Uh, so this is an event that took place quite early on in the French Revolution. As we've mentioned before, anytime we touch on the French Revolution, there's a long and winding road. So this is at the very early start of it. Uh, and it started with a bread shortage. This is kind of one of the more famous aspects of the French Revolution. And as with any historical event, there are multiple causes that lead up to this thing happening. So we're going to talk about each of them and kind of put the pieces together before we get to the actual march. And first in the setup, we're going to talk about Versailles. Versailles is located 12 miles, which is a little more than 19 kilometers from Paris to the southwest of the city. The site originally featured Louis XIII's chateau. It was a stonework hunting lodge designed to be a getaway. But under the next King of France, it became something quite different, eventually evolving into a very opulent seat of the monarchy. The palace and a complex of other buildings built during the seven-decade reign of Louis XIV, at the time just prior to the Revolution, included governmental office buildings, the Royal Gardens, the Grand Trianon, the Petit Trianon, stables, hunting grounds, and multiple structures to house all of the people who lived there, which included many, many servants. It's estimated that at the time of Louis XVI's reign, as many as 60,000 people were living on the grounds at Versailles. It was, in effect, its own city. And it was a luxurious place. The palace, of course, was the most lavish of all the buildings, with more than 2,000 rooms, more than 720,000 square feet, which is about 67,000 square meters of floor space, more than four dozen staircases, and then all that space was decorated with fine art and furniture. There were at least 15,000 paintings in the palace, plus tapestries and glasswork and lots of gold leaf. It took a staff of thousands just to maintain the palace and the grounds. Yeah, so if you've ever visited Versailles, you know it is massive. But it's one of those things where you think about, like, the house you live in and whatever the square footage is. Like, uh, you know, an average sort of apartment-y thing in Atlanta is about 1,200 square feet. <laughs> so then when you think about how massive, I mean, it's a small town just in the palace. It was like, multiply that times 720. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and... In the views of the royals and the nobility who occupied Versailles, it was a house of the people, or at least that's what they told themselves. Anyone could visit and wander around basically unimpeded. So, uh, But even though the lower classes could visit, the really important thing about Versailles is that it was where the king spent basically all his time. And that meant that the seat of government was at a remove from the city of Paris and the common people by the time Louis XVI was ruler. 
In the mid-1770s, the grain market in France was deregulated. This was part of a larger economic plan on the part of Henri-Robert Jacques Turgeot, who was serving as the Minister of Finance, Trade, and Public Works under King Louis XVI, who had at this point become the ruler of France. And Turgeot's blanket philosophy was no bankruptcy, no tax increases, no borrowing. And he did have a positive impact on the French economy. His policies led to a decrease in the deficit and an increase in credit for a brief time. But while Turgot did seem to have some good ideas about handling France's money, he ran into some pretty serious problems after a couple years around 1776. First, he established a freedom of enterprise and competition policy, and this made France's craft guilds really angry because they had previously controlled all that. And... Then he shifted the taxes in kind, where a portion of agricultural production was used as a form of payment. He changed that to a direct money tax. This was intended to garner the government a more liquid income, but it really made everyone angry. Yeah, so to him, this would have fallen under no tax increases, because we're still taxing the same. We just now want the cash instead of the crops. Um, but of course, that's not really the same when you're the person making the payment. So Turgot resigned. At this point, Louis XVI was really frustrated. Uh, Marie Antoinette and the Minister of State kind of urged Turgot to step down, and he was eventually replaced by Jacques Necker. But his legacy in the grain market would continue. After the grain market went free trade without any price controls, there were a number of years where the grain harvest was also poor, and the 1788 crop was especially bad. Then the following winter was a lot colder than normal. Once the temperature rose enough to melt some of the freeze, there was flooding, which affected granaries and fields making 1789 an especially hard year for farming before there was even a chance to plant anything. Yeah, it was basically kind of doomed from the start at this point. And this was in addition to the fact that the population of France had grown by about 8 million people over the course of approximately eight decades, while France's agriculture, which was its primary economic driver, had stayed roughly the the same in terms of size. The grain shortage drove up prices, first making it difficult for the average citizens to afford to buy grain. And then there was so little of it that only the very rich could actually purchase it. In 1788, the laborers of Paris were spending about half of their wages just to purchase bread. And by the following year, the shrinking supply had pushed that percentage up to about 80% of wages just going to bread. Yeah, and that's an approximation because you'll see figures cited that are anywhere from 70 to 90 percent. So I just went right in the middle at 80. And for his part, Nakir had actually retired from government finance, but he returned to the position of director general of finance in 1788 at the request of Louis XVI. He would also be dismissed and recalled again. Uh, you know, the king and his directors of finance had some problems, uh, in 1789. And during his two times being recalled to office, he did make efforts to assuage the suffering of France's hungry people by banning the export of grain, regulating the grain market again, and arranging to have additional grain imported. But it was not enough to make up the huge gap that had been created by all of these poor harvests. Coming up, we'll get into an effort on Louis XVI's part to try to address these problems. But first, we're going to take a break for a quick word from a sponsor. King 
Louis the Sixteenth had already inherited an economic train wreck from his grandfather, and things had only gotten worse while he had been on the throne. So to try to find a way to solve the problem, he assembled the Estates General. And this General Assembly, consisting of representatives of the Estates of the Realm, that would be the clergy, which was the first estate, the nobility, which was the second estate, and the commoners, which were the third estate, had not been brought together since the early 1600s. But this situation was dire. At this point, France was spending almost 50% of its national income to pay the debt accrued over a very long period of poor fiscal management. Of the remaining 50%, 6% was allocated to the maintenance of Versailles. The rest of it went to the military and public works. And this assembly and what came out of it could easily be its own episode. There was a lot that happened. But for the purposes of discussing the Women's March on Versailles, we're going to keep it fairly simple and do pretty much the broad strokes. So... After a long series of squabbles and a seeming impasse, the Third Estate broke away and formed its own initiative under the name of the National Assembly. You've probably heard of the Tennis Court Oath, but just in case you haven't or you're fuzzy about the details, this was a vow made by the members of the General Assembly on a tennis court after being locked out of the hall where they had been meeting Quote, not to separate and to reassemble wherever circumstances require until the constitution of the kingdom is established and consolidated upon solid foundations. Yes, yeah, so they wanted to develop a constitutional monarchy and they were going to write that constitution and they promised they were going to stick together and do it and work together until it was done. And after the king concluded the estate's general meeting, which had spawned the general assembly, and nothing had really, um, you know, been resolved by that estate's general gathering, the group known as the general assembly sort of disbanded. You'll also just see it said, uh, written that they renamed, but they reformed as the national constituent assembly. And at that point too, we should note that there were, even though it's often, uh, called the gathering of the third estate, there were people from the clergy and the nobility that were on board with this and were kind of joining in. And this group was meeting at a hall in the Versailles complex when the Women's March took place. So on October 1st, 1789, there was a raucous party at Versailles in the Opera House that got a lot of publicity. And at this fate, the Royal Flanders Regiment was welcomed by the King's bodyguard at the palace. There was a banquet Lots and lots of wine, and things quickly lost any sense of behavioral constraint. The soldiers in particular got very drunk and allegedly started slurring insults about the revolution. Stories appeared in the press that some of the soldiers had even thrown the tricolor cockades, those are those pleated ribbon badges that had become emblems of the revolution, onto the floor and both urinated on them and stomped on them. And then they allegedly put on the white ribbons of the Bourbons or black ribbons, which were associated with the aristocratic counter-revolution, and swore their loyalty to Louis XVI and his queen. And while Louis XVI had uh, been at the party for some period of time, it was fairly brief. But some accounts claimed that he had been there for hours partying with these soldiers. This event was commemorated by printmakers, but they were largely fabricated depictions of this event as the artists were working from descriptions from other people and maybe even rumors. They were basically filling in the details. Both the stories and the prints were not considered to be accurate. But boy, they were really proliferating throughout France at the time. Uh, but though they were overblown reports, they still garnered the ire of the public. 
For one, guests in Versailles were badmouthing the revolution, which was just in its infancy, and people were really angry to think that the king was hosting people that were basically saying that that was stupid and useless. Uh, for another, these men were being treated to a massive feast when many of France's people were going hungry. And because this October 1st party was just another in the long line of incidents of waste on the part of the monarchy while the common people suffered, it sparked lots of protest. Yeah, certainly not the first protest, but uh, and we'll talk about that a little in a moment. And additionally, there had been an expected bump in the availability of bread. So the grain harvest had taken place in September. Uh there wasn't a lot, but there was some, so it seemed like there should be some bread available. And there had, as we said, been efforts on the part of the French government under the stewardship of Director General of Finance Jacques Necker to import additional grain. So people thought that there should be some food to eat, but those supplies had not arrived yet in early October when this was going on. The lack of grain, even though there had been assurances that shipments had been arranged, caused all kinds of rumors to circulate. As lines for even meager portions of bread stretched for city blocks, people started to gossip that the shortage was purposely being arranged by the government to weaken the populace and make them more submissive. Yeah, when you combine the fact that there is no food with the fact that there are Obviously, these lavish parties and a lot of spending going on at Versailles, uh, you know, this ties in, of course, to the whole let the meat cake falsehood uh, <laughs> that is often <laughs> reported that has been talked about on the, the show before, I think, by previous hosts. And we've certainly referenced it. Yeah, I think that's like a really short episode back in the Candace and maybe even Josh days, maybe yeah. Candace and Jane, long time ago. Yeah, but I mean, basically everything that was being reported was largely rumor, but people were so upset that conspiracy theories were just sort of like the standard of the day. And it was easy to believe that there must be something nefarious going on if they were having parties in the palace while no one else could even get a loaf of bread. Uh, so that is why rumors were so rampant at the time. There had been multiple calls for organized protests in the days and weeks leading up to October, but this grain issue, combined with the bad press around the party at Versailles, served as a catalyst. Protests started on October 4th with people marching in the streets to decry this rumored party at Versailles as well as the food scarcity. But they didn't really come together until the following day. On October 5th of 1789, a march started that would eventually cover the 12-plus miles from Paris to Versailles. But it didn't begin with that intent. So when the first part of the crowd assembled in the morning, it was outside the Hotel de Ville. That was the seat of the Parisian city council. And somewhere between 5,000 and 10,000 people. Again, that's one of those things that the, the reporting is very, very widely varied. Uh, it was mostly women. They stood outside this administrative building demanding that all the remaining grain stores be released to the people. There was no response from the Hotel de Ville. So at that point, the crowd decided to march right to the monarchy with their protest. And by noon, the group had armed themselves with clubs, muskets, pikes, and the like, and headed out of Paris to walk to Versailles, basically the length of a half marathon. I know. That's what I kept thinking is that, um, you know, Tracy's done a half. I've done quite a number of half marathons. <laughs> 
this is not a small distance. It's one of those things that um, if you've ever walked a mile and been that person that's been like, I could do that 12 more times. Yes, you probably could, but it's exhausting. You might hurt yourself like I did. And now imagine doing that when you haven't had enough to eat in months. Yeah. It's a, a no small undertaking, and it speaks to the level of frustration that was prevalent at the time among the people of Paris. And the royal family had received word of the protesters headed toward the palace, so they sought refuge in their private apartments, and the gates were locked. While women made up the majority of the marchers, they were accompanied by a National Guard officer named Stanislas Maillard. This was not, for many of the marchers, their first protest. A lot of the women, as well as Maillard, had been part of the storming of the Bastille several months earlier on July 14th. And the group, as it made its way from Paris to Versailles, grew. The exact numbers of the protest are difficult to gauge because uh, there are varying accounts. And as we know from more recent history, it's kind of tough to estimate crowd size sometimes. Yes. Numbers vary anywhere from 10,000 to 30,000 people. And the crowd had more than one aim in this protest. And that happened because it had become a combination of the initial group of women who were marching largely over food shortages and other groups that had joined in with their own agendas regarding the revolution. So by the time they reached Versailles, there were several demands kind of being put forth by different factions of the group. One was for the monarchy to address the food shortage, which had really been the initial driver for this whole march. Another was for the king to relocate to Paris and reign from a position where he was with his people and not solely influenced by the aristocracy. And then there were people who just wanted to harm the king or really more specifically Marie Antoinette because she sort of became to many people of France emblematic of the fiscal problems they were having because she was known for spending a lot of money when they had nothing. We will talk about how things played out once this protest actually got to Versailles. But first, we will have another quick word from one of our sponsors. The protesters would end up spending about 24 hours at Versailles. The two days of the protest, October 5th and 6th, are sometimes referred to as the October Days or the October Days March, in addition to being called the Women's March on Versailles. To add tension to the situation, it was raining when the march got to the Versailles complex. So some of the women, about 20, made their way into the hall where the National Constituent Assembly was meeting, along with Maillard. While this took the assembly by surprise, the group spoke with the protesters and heard them out. And Maillard did most of the talking on behalf of the demonstrators. The women and Maillard explained that there was no bread in Paris and that they needed the assembly's help. And so the men drafted a proposed decree requesting that the king make every effort to get grain circulating through the population. And this proposal was read to the women and Maillard for review. Jean-Joseph Mounier, who was president of the National Constituent Assembly, deputized six of the women present so they could enter the palace and make their case directly to King Louis XVI. And for his part, the king seemed receptive. He heard what the women had to say and assured them that he would take action to address the food shortage. The crowd, however, was not placated by the words of the king. In an attempt to mollify the situation, Louis XVI declared that the food stores of Versailles should be open and that the supplies within should be distributed among them. Still, the crowd was not soothed. To add tension to the moment, a National Guard regiment led by the Marquis de Lafayette Still, the crowd was not soothed. 
To add tension to the moment, a National Guard regiment led by the Marquis de Lafayette had arrived at Versailles should military intervention be needed. But Louis XVI was against the idea of using force in the situation. Tensions waxed and waned throughout the night, and although there were occasionally stray shots fired, the situation did not escalate into violence. Allegedly, there was even a fairly friendly relationship between some of the guardsmen and the crowd. Uh, (laughs) Given the Marquis de Lafayette's reputation in both the United States and France, that does not completely surprise me. Yeah, apparently some of some of the guardsmen were just kind of mingling with the people that were there, hanging out. They were trying to kind of make a go of it. Like, we're all stuck here for the night, I guess. <laughs> um, but as the night stretched on and uh, dawn of October 6th approached, it became apparent that there were factions in the crowd who had gotten really restless with the situation. They wanted more action on the part of the monarch to come to the aid of the people, and they had become convinced that the queen, Marie Antoinette, would reverse the seemingly magnanimous efforts of her husband. The section of the protesters became more and more agitated and eventually made their way into the palace in the early morning in search of the queen, Their intent was to harm her and, according to some accounts, to kill her. But as the queen fled, the angry faction was unable to keep up the pursuit for the palace's complex floor plan and its many, many doors. Yeah, all of those 2,000 rooms really paid off. uh, Because if you didn't know the entry and exit points, it was hard to keep up with someone that was running through them that knew them very well. And in the midst of this pursuit, though, things turned violent when a guard fired upon two of the women protesters. One of them was killed, which fomented the rest of the group into retaliatory violence. Two soldiers were killed and dismembered. The Marquis de Ferriere, a nobleman who was at Versailles at the time, wrote of that morning, and here is what he said. At six o'clock in the morning, a crowd of women and armed men assembled in the square, summoned by the beating of drums. Shouts of rage against the royal bodyguards were heard. One of those columns marched up to the royal gate, but found it locked. Another got through by the gate of the chapel, which was open. One of the National Guards of the Versailles militia led the way up to the the king's staircase. Some of the bodyguard ran up, quote, My friends, you love your king, and yet you even come to his palace to disturb him. No one answered. The column continued to advance. The bodyguard mustered in their hall. The doors were soon broken down, and they were forced to evacuate it. The conspirators approached the queen's apartments, crying, quote, We are going to cut off her head, tear out her heart, fry her liver, and that will be the end of it. Miomandra flew to the door of the first anteroom, opened it hurriedly, and called to the lady whom she saw, Save the queen! They mean to kill her! I am alone, facing two thousand tigers. My comrades have been obliged to quit their hall. After these few words, Maomandra shut the door and bravely waited for the conspirators. One of them tried to stab him with his pike. He parried the blow. Another, taking the pike by the head, struck him a blow with the butt, which felled him to the ground. Stand back, said the National Guardsman who led the column. The crowd made room for him. Then, measuring the butt of his musket against Maomandra's head, he struck him with all his force so that the trigger penetrated his skull. Maomandra, streaming with blood, was left for dead. And eventually, with more manpower summoned, the military was able to get all of the protesters out of the palace, though the now angry mob remained outside. 
Lafayette suggested that Louis XVI address the crowd, and the king went along with this plan, walking out to the balcony to tell the gathered people that he and the rest of the immediate royal family would travel to Paris, and he declared his love for his people. He also put on a tricolor cockade. And Louis' words sort of did the trick. Uh, his words were well-received by the crowd, and they did begin to cheer for him. And he then left the balcony to be replaced by his wife. And while she was not met with the same cheers, it was not lost on the crowd that she was showing an incredible level of trust in making this appearance so immediately after this foiled attempt on her life. The morning was spent preparing for travel. And that very afternoon, Louis XVI, Marie Antoinette, and their children left Versailles, accompanied by several members of the National Constituent Assembly and the crowd that had been at Versailles throughout the protest. King Louis XVI and the National Constituent Assembly moved into the Palais de Tuileries on the right bank of the Seine. And while the Tuileries was a palace originally built in the 16th century, it had not been an active residence for decades. So there was some effort required to make it livable as a home and serviceable as a governmental hub. And it's one of those things where people go, well, you moved into another palace, but it really was a a significant shift in their lifestyle from what they had been uh, living in at Versailles. This is the first time in a hundred years that France was governed from Paris rather than from the Versailles complex. And Louis XVI and his family never saw Versailles again. Yeah, so that was the Women's March on Versailles. That seemed effective. A little bit of bloodshed, unfortunately. But uh, yeah, I mean, I, we, you and I talked about it before we started that I have this whole thing where I, when I read about Marie Antoinette and Louis XVI, and there have been some writings in recent years that have fallen more in this angle rather than the the sort of more vilifying versions, which is probably what I'm most influenced by. Uh, they made so many stupid, stupid moves. But I really think they just were not prepared for the roles that they found themselves in. Yeah, they uh, sometimes are portrayed as like mustache twirling villains cackling over everybody else's misfortune. Yeah, or just completely callous. And really, I think they just didn't get it. They had no grasp of the reality of France. I think Louis XVI wanted to do the right thing, but didn't know how. He didn't know who to trust. He didn't, he wasn't ever confident enough in any of his advisors to really follow through on any plans that may have helped in the long run. There are some historians that theorize that if Turgot had been allowed to stay in his position uh, running finances, that he actually could have prevented the later events of the revolution. But we don't know. Uh, but yeah, I, I, oh, they made so many poor choices and just bad decisions. But I really think above all else, they were just foolish and ill-prepared. And the whole situation was exacerbated so much by like huge food shortages and this enormous disparity between the like the world of Versailles and the world of everyone else. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's a thing like how how can you govern people you don't even know or understand? Uh and it's it's a fascinating story. I think that's why people are continue to be fascinated by Louis the 16th and Marie Antoinette. It's just it's such a bizarre concept. They're so completely divorced from the people that they are uh allegedly ruling. It's there's a, a surreal level of out of touchness going on, which mm-hmm. is, is again, it's fascinating. Uh but I have listener mail that's uh nicer. Oh good. 
Yeah, so I have a couple postcards. Uh, the first is from our listener, Michelle. It is a postcard that she sent us um, of the Wild Bunch, which we referenced in our uh, Robber's Roost episode that we did in Salt Lake. Uh, she says, Tracy and Holly, after listening to your recent live show about Robber's Roost and how you love that Telluride, Colorado uses uh, Butch Cassidy as their claim to fame, I had to write to you. I grew up in Montpelier, Idaho. We not only have a plaque in front of the bank he robbed, the bank is now a museum commemorating that robbery. We even have a festival business and businesses named for him. I love the show. Keep it up. So it is that famous photograph of the Wild Bunch that we talked about in the episode where they all look for all the world like fancy businessmen in their lovely suits <laughs> and not in fact like men on the run from the law um it's such a good picture it's one of those that even though it's like the one picture that gets used all the time i love it every time i see it uh the other one is from our listener whitney and it is a little bit uh germane not even just a little bit it's germane to what we talked about today she says hi ladies i wanted to drop you a line from boston a city rich in history um my husband and I are on our way home from the honeymoon, from our honeymoon in the Azores, and we couldn't resist a 48-hour layover in a city filled with history. Thank you for all you do in the fantastic podcast. But the postcard that she sent us is uh, a, a postcard with a quote from Abigail Adams. It says, remember the ladies and be more generous and favorable to them. And the back explains that it is part of the Adams letters. The quote on the front of the card and what follows are both part of a letter sent by Abigail Adams to her husband, John Adams, dated March 31st, 1776. So again, that's the same time all of this stuff is playing out. Uh, if particular care and attention is not paid to the ladies, we are determined to foment a rebellion and will not hold ourselves bound by any laws in which we have no voice or representation. So that just seemed pertinent to today's discussion uh-huh. uh, of the women who marched on Versailles. Again, at the same time that all of that Abigail Adams was doing her writing or around the same time, I should say. So thank you, thank you both for sending us postcards and everyone else who has sent us cards that we haven't gotten to read on the air. I have a massive pile at my desk and I'm trying to figure out what I want to do with them because I don't want to get rid of them, but I have to figure out a better storage plan than piling them on my desk, <laughs> <laughs> which is uh I have quickly become like an Oscar the Grouch level trash monster of things just piling around my desk. Uh, I'm not good at organizing spatial relationships. Uh, so anyway, if you would like to write to us, please do so at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com. You can also find us across the spectrum of social medias at Missed in History. That includes Twitter at Missed in History, Pinterest as Missed in History, Facebook.com slash Missed in History, Missed in History.tumblr.com. And we're on Instagram as at Missed in History. If you would like to visit our site, which is mistinhistory.com. You can do that. You will find an archive of every episode of the podcast that has ever existed, as well as show notes for any of the episodes Tracy and I have worked on together, as well as some other cool stuff. And you can visit our parent site, howstuffworks.com. Type in a search term in the search bar and you're going to come up with lots of stuff. If you uh, type in Marie Antoinette, lots of things will happen. You'll have a lot of things to keep you busy for a while. So we encourage you, come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 